Oh, it was definitely not a linear path and I, I, well, it kind of makes sense to me now. There certainly was no strategy. It was probably just sort of following my nose and thinking, well, this is a bit different. Why don't I give this a go? Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. Today my guest is Jemima Harris, Senior Lawyer, Executive and Director on the board of a number of not-for-profit organisations. Jemima currently works as the Head of Legal Operations and Technology at LOD. Thank you so much for joining me, Jemima. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You were my accountability buddy for this project. And here we are actually doing it three months after I texted you saying, I'm doing a podcast and you need to keep me accountable. So thank you, even though you didn't know it, kept me on track. (laughs) You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And I'm really excited to be part of it. We've known each other for a few years now. We've worked together in various different ways over different companies and, and secondments. And, and I would suggest, and I hope you agree, that you've become certainly a firm friend of mine and a mentor who has you know, led me through career transitions and essentially growing from a baby in-house lawyer to a mid-level in-house lawyer. And I just wanted to thank you for being such a part of that journey and steering me at so many times and so many ways probably wouldn't even be aware but it's just such such a nice moment for me to have you on this podcast so thank you thank you um it's yeah very much reciprocated I think it's a lot of people think that a a mentor or somebody who advises you has to be a, a much older senior person and I, I think you sh- you probably don't realize how your guidance has been a steer for me at times as well so thank you goes both ways hey <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're all still learning yes so I have a fun question okay if you had a limitless credit card but you could only spend it at one shop what shop would that be and why that's that's hard but I think I would go to a travel agent and I would book an amazing around the world holiday for about a year for for me and my family. But if I can be a bit cheeky and kind of build it into a two-part question, although I'd like to go outside of Australia when we're allowed to do that again and and do lots of fabulous things, the the other idea I had other than the travel part was a slightly selfish one and it involves shoes because you know I like the shoes. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the first step on the journey would be to go to Cosmopolitan Shoes in Sydney and not window shop as I have every other time I've been there. Oh, fabulous. You get your shoes, get on the plane and off you go. That's it. I love it. (laughs) What a great (laughs) one. So Jemima, on to the, the matter at hand. Yes. I'd love to give you the chance to just set up for the listeners what your career journey has been to date. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. When I look back at it, it makes a lot more sense. I think it did at the time I was on the journey. When I was um, in my last year, second last year of uni, I probably thought I was on a path to finish uni, maybe do a clerkship at a big law firm and go and go out into the world that way. And I saw an ad on the jobs board at, at uni for a, a clerkship 
at the CSIRO who had a division located not far from where I went to uni at Macquarie Uni in Sydney. And until that point, I never even knew that being an in-house lawyer was a thing that you could do and thought, this sounds pretty cool. I'll, um, I liked doing science at school. Maybe I can combine law and an interest in technology and mm. applied for the job and got it. And I loved it. It was great. I had a you know a great team of lawyers that I worked with there, but also got to experience being around a whole lot of other really clever people who weren't lawyers and who were doing really exciting things and being able to, uh, the, the legal work I was doing was supporting that. And I found that incredibly exciting. And I did that over the summer and kind of thought, yeah, I think being an in-house lawyer might be what I should do. My dad is also a lawyer and sort of gave me some advice, which I think was the right advice at the time saying, well, maybe you should work in a law firm for a while just so that you've seen both sides of the fence. So I did that and I went and worked in a small firm where I had a really hands-on role doing a lot of disputes work and for a while thought I might go to the bar, but um, the Mm. the pull of in-house was a bit too much. And then about five years later, I went and worked um, in-house again in a technology business and really, really loved that and did that for five or six years. And that that was a fantastic role, both because it was, you know, in that in a great environment. I really enjoyed being part of the business, seeing it develop. It was a startup business. So there was it was very exciting, lots of stuff going on. I got to be involved in lots of really great projects and learn a lot about business as well as law. And um, towards the end of my time with that company, um, my family relocated to Brisbane and I was able to work remotely, which was fantastic. I had a a young child at the time and, you know, it was a really great flexible job. Mm. Ultimately, that business folded and I found myself kind of unexpectedly not employed and that kind of led me down another path where I thought I'll try out this contract lawyering thing and see what that's like. And my first contract role was in-house, working at Cement Australia, a completely different business, not in the technology space, but again, really exciting and really enjoyed being able to, to go in for a period of time. I knew it wasn't wasn't going to be forever and just learn as much as I could about that business in the industry and different areas of law and did that again later after I had my second child um, at Brisbane Airport where we met. And yes. um, so it was worth it just for that, but also oh. <laughs> um, again, a wonderful experience and a good way to to dip my toe back into um, employment. But I started to realise at this time how interesting it was, not just the legal work, but being part of different teams and seeing the different different ways that in-house teams organise themselves and, and what, what was good and what, you know, what, what I learned each time just from the, the ways of working, not just the work itself. And the the secondment that I did at, at Brisbane Airport was through Lex Foco, who were acquired by LOD, who I still work for last year. And having done that secondment, I was really interested in legal operations and my role evolved into one where I managed the business for Lex Foco in, in Queensland and, and started working on legal operations and tech projects, which I really love. So I get to work with lots of in-house teams now doing some mm-hmm. legal work, but then also working in the legal operations space. And um, you know, I really love it. It's that great mix of doing the work, but also helping do the work better. You've tried a little bit of everything, haven't you? Starting on 
the litigation or the back-end disputes work in, in private practice going into in-house in different industries and then actually taking it one step further into the contract lawyer space or the secondment lawyer space, which is an amazing way to be of use for different periods of time. And I'm interested to know how you found that experience of jumping into different in-house teams for short periods of time. Yeah, it's an interesting one. The first time I was quite nervous because I didn't know what to expect and um, often with secondments, they start off as being for maybe four to six weeks. They're, they're often extended. So you, you go in thinking it might be only for four to six weeks. And you know, depending on the type of role, it, it's hard to really get your head around what's going on within that time. So it's really just a matter of trying to work out really quickly who's who in the zoo, what's important, so you can you know start doing the work really quickly, which is challenging. And that often comes down to, I guess, the maturity of the legal department you're going into from a legal operations perspective, if they've got you know, a good set of guidelines that they can give you as a new starter so that you can quickly understand things like what the business's preferred position on certain contractual terms is. So if you've got to review and negotiate a contract, you know what you're looking for. Mm. And I think that's partly what has piqued my interest in that space in you know, seeing the value of having that well set up and where it's not. So I think that they're probably, you know, looking for trying to understand quite quickly and identify who who can help you if you have those questions and you know really just trying to embed yourself in the business and and be as helpful as possible because you learn a lot that way what would you suggest to anyone who was looking at entering into or taking on a contract lawyer position Hmm, that's a great question I think I definitely just have a go I think if you think about all of the things that you need to know when you're reviewing a contract or or giving advice, try to, particularly if you don't get some some guides or or a good handover, maybe have a list of questions so that you can proactively get sort of the basics so that you're not flying blind. Talk, Talk to as many people as you can to try and get a sense of, I guess, the risk profile of the business so you can work out where to pitch your advice. And probably what I've done until I've felt confident the risk profile of the business is different is to go more conservative than probably would be my natural style mm-hmm. to you know to make sure that you know it's better to err, err on that side I think than than the other yeah of course sometimes I think there's just a bit of luck involved that you it's a good match but I think just you know m- most of the time if you're an experienced lawyer back yourself that your your approach is the right approach and you tailor that as as you learn on the job yeah Absolutely. I'd love to get your take on how you describe what you do to somebody outside of the legal profession. Uh, So I typically describe it as management consulting for lawyers. Um, So legal operations, as I would define it, is the way you run an in-house legal department as opposed to the, the actual work that is done by the lawyers there. So looking at how, um, you know, what are the strategies, documents, processes and getting everything working really efficiently so that the lawyers in that team can, can do their job as, as easily as possible and hopefully be very happy, happy lawyers in the process. And do you think that legal operations is something just for big in-house teams to be thinking about? No, I think it's all teams of all sizes, even a one-person legal team really, and probably even more so in a smaller team where you've got less resources, you need to be smart with them. Yeah, for sure. 
Can you explain to me what legal tech has to do with legal operations? I know these two terms are sometimes used together, maybe interchangeably. Sometimes the word innovation is thrown in. I'd just love to give a little bit of a breakdown for those that might not be as familiar with the terms, how legal tech plays with legal operations. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question, and it's it's one that I've um, I've been asked a few times. The way I view the relationship between legal ops and legal tech is that legal technology or technology of any kind is kind of a tool in the toolkit to help you solve your legal operations problems. So the the, the various things that you you would be looking at having you know good good documents and processes can involve technology. But that can be as simple as you know, when I'm talking about documents and processes, it could just mean having a really good set of contract templates that, that you can use. You might, depending on how often you use them, you might use legal technology to automate them and speed up some of the processes for getting contracts produced and signed. But I view technology as kind of a step later in the process once you've got those documents and processes working really well, then there's also sort of the overlay of systems that you use to do your work, you know, your email, your, your documents, where you store your documents, all of that's very important. And having things organised well is crucial to, to being able to do your job and to be able to find you and store your information and access it. So it's sort of a problem solving tool potentially, but also, you know, the, the way you organise yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's fundamental to that second part, making sure, you know, you've, you've got a good, even if it's very basic structure for, for organising your information as, which might need to be, you know, when you're a lawyer working in a company, you might need to keep your information quarantined from the rest of the business for privilege mm -hmm. reasons. But then also, how can you supercharge the things you've got using technology like automation tools and, and things like that? I suppose legal tech, as you say, it's a tool in the toolbox, but it's not going to be a silver bullet that fixes every inefficiency in a department. And I suspect that you may have seen where legal tech has been brought in without a thorough assessment or perhaps not implemented particularly well, mm -hmm. or maybe not even understanding what the problem is that the team are trying to fix. Yes. And it sounds to me like the first piece is crucial in understanding, irrespective of the tech or the tech solutions, understanding what what is the current state what are the current processes, getting that out onto a whiteboard, or I know you're a fan of the, uh, what are they, the sticky notes? Yes, I love a sticky note. <laughs> love a sticky note. Getting it all out so you can see what the current process is and then applying, you know, uh, the the lean methodology or, or thinking to it so you can understand how it might be done differently and at that point, there may be the option to look at a tech solution, but I imagine it's not necessarily the first the first piece of the work. No, absolutely. And, and what you've just described is, is exactly the approach that, that I take, which is it's a problem-led approach. There's all sorts of wonderful legal tech out there. And um, I've, I've spoken to teams who have had the luxury of having big budgets and um, able to go and try all the, the shiny legal tech. 
um, but there was one team I spoke to last year who said, oh, we've been on this, you know, had this wonderful year where we've, we've tried all these different systems. This one's a data capture system. We've, you know, dabbled with this no, no code automation tool. And then it, it got to the end of the year and everyone's just said, we're over it. There's so many systems. They don't talk to each other. None of them kind of really do what it says on the box. We kind of want to go back to the beginning and, you know, do exactly what we've just been talking about, which is, well, you know, what, what's causing, causing us problems? Let, let's start with that. And so sometimes the solution might be one of those tools, but it's important to, to not get too excited and drawn in by the slick sales job. And can you help legal teams with identifying what the current process is and how it might be improved? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I, I spend a lot of time with is working with teams to kind of really understand what, what is the current process, what's not working, and then help them sort of redesign their future state. It's really interesting sometimes, a project I've done recently, the team had a, a, an issue with a particular process. And so I started by talking to each of the individual team members to, to ask them you know, what their role in the process was, get them to describe the process and what they thought was wrong with it. And from there, kind of map it out visually on using Visio, or you could do it with post-its on, on a wall. And it was really interesting that nobody in the team actually knew what the entire process was, just their bit. And when when we mapped it out and I showed it to them visually, they were amazed at, at what it actually looked like. They learnt something because they learnt what the, the process actually was. And once it, you can see it in that kind of visual form, it's really easy to see where the inefficiencies are, where there are kind of loops for example, with approvals going to multiple places or, you know, there being unnecessary approvals in a process where people are included who don't really need to, to approve a transaction or part of a transaction and that can slow it down. So those sorts of things are, you know, it, it seems really simple, but sometimes when you're, you're living the process day to day, you don't see that detail. It, it can help to take a step back and, I mean, not necessarily with my help, but if they'd um, as a group, stepped back and just mapped it out on on the whiteboard. They probably would have seen it for themselves. And I, it, it's one of the things that I encourage clients I talk to 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 really allow themselves the time to step back from the, the business as usual work and spend some time looking at well, how are we doing this? How could we do this better? And and doing things like that so that they can find those opportunities. Mm, there's so much value in taking the time to pull back and have a little bit of that blue sky thinking. And I know it can be so hard for teams to give themselves the permission to take half a day or a whole day out of the office and actually look at what's going on and and start to set some goals for the year to come about what it could be. I'd love to get your take on the benefits that you've seen and whether you you would encourage teams to, to take that time and to have that big picture thinking. Absolutely. And the benefits are tremendous. Even um, last week, I ran a workshop for a team who uh, don't all sit together in the same city and obviously don't sit together at all now. So it was completely virtual. And we were talking about challenges um, relating to how they manage their emails and their document management. And it was really interesting. It was the first time that they'd ever talked about it as a group. I'm sure they're all individually complaining about how the system's not great. But the, at the end of the session, the, the comment was, it's it's great to understand how everybody else's pain is sort of shared and 
we can solve the problem together. And I think that applies to lots of different problems. And I mean, that was just a couple of hours that they spent as a group, you know, working through some, a, a few of the challenges that they'd been experiencing. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, days at a time out of the office, although that's obviously fantastic. That's the holy grail. But <laughs> I think even having, having an agenda item on a regular team meeting to talk about, you know, the how, not just the what, or, you know, even quarterly, have have some time, a few hours to to talk about things, and maybe you know have a running list of things to add to to it ahead of that you know the quarterly session, so that you do quarantine the time to to invest in in yourself as a team. Um, I think it, it's it's tremendously tremendously rewarding, and once you identify a problem, you can sort of measure the impact of it. Like if um, people are spending hours searching for information that they know is there, that has a direct cost to the business in terms of, you know, the, the cost of that person's labour over time can add up significantly. And, you know, you can use that if you need to, to build a business case to 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 buy a piece of technology or to invest in, in some process improvement and um, you remove the frustration so people are happier at work, they're not wasting time, but also getting getting things done faster. You've clearly highlighted the benefits that um, I've experienced as an in-house lawyer as well. But I think bigger than that is that the business expects the legal team to apply the same the same metrics that the rest of the business is as well. Definitely. I suspect that that this might be a newer part of the business landscape and that legal teams flew under the radar for some time, but it's certainly been my experience that we're being held to the same standard and we need to show, you know, the executive and the, the CEO at the end of the day and that we are looking at ways to improve processes that, you know, add value and remove waste, basically. Seems yeah. to come down to those two things in um, in my experience, but the the second piece, and you touched on it, is about the happiness of the lawyers in the team. Yeah, and there's no doubt that when the low value, you know, drudgery kind of, oh, just that work that is easy but annoying, but when that kind of work can be eliminated or reduced or perhaps made self-service so that the internal clients can work on it themselves for the most part. There's so much satisfaction there for the in-house lawyer who now has more time to focus on the big ticket items and the things that are of interest. And that's kind of what it's all about at the end of the day. And I'm, I'm sure you get such joy from contributing to process improvement that makes people's lives easier. Oh, definitely, and it's it's something that I I often stress when working with teams because it's interesting even when there's a common pain point that everyone's you know experiencing within teams there are often you know different different levels of uh, willingness to change and I think lawyers are generally not great at change and I don't think it's necessarily our fault it's you know we're taught to be risk averse to follow mm. precedent. And I think it requires a bit of a mindset shift, but you know, obviously as an in-house lawyer, you have a job because you're helping the business to, to make money and achieve its strategy. But I think, and, and it's a point that I like to make when introducing these concepts is it, but it's not just about that. It can, it's not just about, you know, 
corporate efficiency, it really does feed into wellbeing for all the reasons you've just listed. And I think that is really important in and of itself, but it can also really get on board some of those change skeptics who would be happy to just continue working inefficiently because that's what they know. I'd love to know what trends you're seeing and, and what you're most intrigued by at the moment in the legal tech space. Uh, so clients are asking us a lot about contract lifecycle management, which is having a system to manage the, the life cycle of a contract, as the name would suggest, from the time a contract is created through managing the contract, you know, managing due dates and, and things like that through all the way through to when it comes to an end and, you know, storing the signed document somewhere. Um, so that's that's something that is of interest to a lot of legal teams and, you know, increasingly so, which, you know, it makes sense. It's part of that once you've gone through and made sure you've got good processes and templates, if you can put that into a system that, that makes it more efficient for the business. And that's not just the legal team because often you'll have um, sales and procurement teams who are at the front end of the wanting to get contracts signed to buy things or to sell sell things that the business is selling and that can feed into the system and legal is just part of that process. So that's sort of, it's exciting to be part of a, a, a bigger initiative that's not just um, with the legal team. But I've also been um, doing a bit of research and playing with a few um, no-code automation tools recently, really simple ones because mm. I'm but a lawyer, not a, not a technical person, but finding it really fun to play around with some of those tools to to automate basic things like you know creating a simple document like a a simple goods and services agreement or a non-disclosure agreement to to make it a lot easier to do that either for lawyers so that maybe a, a paralegal within the legal team could create a document or even the the business themselves could create their own templates create their own documents so that they don't need to get lawyers involved in a lot of cases and, and speed up um, getting deals done so I, I um, have been enjoying doing that and in particular we as a business at LOD we use the Microsoft 365 suite and using some of the tools that come with the package and they're, they're pretty easy to use and I kind of feel like I if I'm going to talk to, to clients about how to do this it helps to have some level of experience with it but um, I can tell you I've successfully automated some simple documents which means anybody can do it and um, I think it's it's a great thing to be able to do because it doesn't require any investment if you can use the tools you've already got. That's fantastic. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. What what it is, is it? No coding. No code automation. So they're it's tools that that I've um, been looking at recently are within Microsoft Suite using Forms and Power Automate. There's a really cool tool that I've come across recently called Joseph, which is, has a really lovely interface and, and does a similar thing. It's kind of like a chatbot that will say, who are you signing the contract with? And you enter the party name, what's their ABN? And you enter it and then at the end of the process, you get a beautiful document populated that you can just sign using wow. your electronic signature platform. That sounds really cool. I'm going to check that out for sure. It's pretty fun. Yes. Okay. So you've, gosh, you've definitely mentioned quite a number of, of legal tech trends and everything from, you know, looking at what you currently have and actually not discounting some of the tools that you might even be able to use from a current a current suite all the way to, to new things that I hadn't even heard of, no-code automation. And I, I know you really, uh, you do work in a space that is quite, the cutting edge and the I would say that 
LOD are thought leaders in this space and and always looking ahead around what's coming and, and how legal teams can continue to thrive. With that in mind, I'd love to know where you see the in-house legal industry as a whole in the next five years and what's actually what's going to be different for us in, say, 2025. That's interesting. I've been thinking about this. I mean, 2025 isn't that far away, but if I think about how much things have changed in the last five years, I don't think I would have believed you if you told me five years ago I'd be working with some of the tools I am now. I think in terms of trends, I'm really hoping that some of the, the changes we've kind of had forced upon us over the last few months as a result of working remotely will drive a real shift in the mindset of a lot of lawyers that some things are a bit are too hard. I think there's, you know, a lot of difference, different stages of maturity and willingness to 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 innovate or do things differently. But I think uh, I can I can feel a real shift talking to in-house teams over the last few months who have been able to to achieve things that they wouldn't have thought possible at the start of the year. So some organisations who, you know, were very risk averse and saying, oh, we could never have implement electronic signatures, those contracts will never be enforceable, <laughs> managed to, to do it within a week because they had to, yeah. because people couldn't physically get together to sign, sign documents. So I feel like things probably won't change radically, but I'm really hoping that the laggers will catch up mm. and some of the teams that either because of you know, themselves or the organisations that they work for having a, a bit of a reluctance to change or to embrace some of the relatively basic technological benefits that they that they can use to make the, their lives a bit easier, like electronic signatures, that will, Catch I guess, snowball. Yeah, for sure. And, and continue so that the teams that are perhaps a little bit more advanced now will be the norm. Mm. Oh, that sounds exciting. It does. <laughs> no, and, and I think, like you said, it's about mindset and change has been forced upon some lawyers and, and others were really excited and are always up for a challenge and have a bit of a growth mindset. But however you come to it, if you're more open to, to change and looking at doing things differently, yeah, I do suspect that everyone will benefit from that and that the in-house team of 2025 will be uh, hopefully a little bit more open to doing things differently. I'd love to know what you think about the composition of in-house teams. Do you think that we'll continue to see a growing, like a volume? You know, uh, are we, I, I suppose it's a bit of a leading question because I've, I've seen some statistics that indicate that in-house lawyers as a, a whole in the state of Queensland, at least, are increasing just year mm. on year. And uh, I suspect that that may come from, you know, basically realigning of external lawyer spend, bringing that back into the business and, and, you know, spending it on a salaried employee um, and and all of the benefits that come with that. Do you think that that's a trend that you're seeing and sizes of teams are growing? Uh, Yes, absolutely. I I think that trend will continue and I think it is largely cost-driven as you've just described, but I think it's 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 also because a lot of legal teams are doing really great work and being able to demonstrate their value to the business not just as lawyers but as trusted advisors and 
real commercial partners in helping run the business. And I think that that happens in a lot of ways. It's through you know the, the work that they do and um, you know some of the the improvements that I've talked about how they can really show show the business that they're they're working to help make make business run more efficiently but I think probably kind of slightly outside of the legal team if you look at the composition of lots of boards leaving aside gender diversity issues mm. there are a lot of reformed lawyers on those boards <laughs> and I think um, in, in general there's there's a a real value placed on the the problem solving skill set of lawyers and I think you know within business generally not just within the legal team and I think that that bodes well for legal teams to continue to be supported and appreciated as really valuable and crucial to the success of a business so I think they will continue to grow you know along with the businesses that they support and hopefully um, in, in a way that's you know really exciting and, and rewarding mm. for lawyers you know coming through the ranks. And speaking of lawyers coming through the ranks, if we look at the early career lawyers and, and the junior lawyers that are out there, how do you see their role in in-house teams? I think it really depends on the, the type of law that the person wants to practice. And I'm seeing an increasing number of lawyers going straight into in-house roles after qualifying rather yeah, than into I've seen that as well. In, yeah, in not going straight, you know, to a law firm and then waiting a few years and and then making the move. The traditional path. Yes. And I think both paths have their advantages and disadvantages. Um I'm really excited to see that it's becoming you know, the the opportunities for, for going straight to in house if that's what you're interested in are are there. And increasingly, that there seem to be opportunities to do PLT within an in-house team rather than a law mm. firm, or, or to do a bit of both, and to to really get a taste of, of what it's like and, and see see if it's for you. It, you know, certainly, I, I was drinking the Kool Aid within a couple of weeks. I had a fantastic experience um, mm. working in-house, and it sort of spoilt me for for anything else. It it was it opened my eyes to to a whole other world that I'd never never knew existed. So, it's I try not to be too evangelical about it, but I would definitely encourage early career lawyers to find you know, opportunities where they can to get an experience of whichever side of the fence they're on of that other side. And that's what it's all about. I think too often, you know, as a as a graduate or a junior lawyer, you feel a pressure to really pick something and for that to be it. And that, you you know, you've got to get it right because this is going to be your career and you can't change. But I, I really feel like I've seen enough evidence now to suggest that anything is possible. If you want to go straight to in-house and then maybe back to private practice at three or four years and then perhaps back it to in-house at eight to 10, you know, that is possible. I've, I've seen people do that. And so I, I encourage everyone to find a path that works for them and just to taste things and to try things with with no pressure of this being the one path for me. And I certainly am flying the flag for the in-house cause just so that people know it's an option because it's not always something that is talked about at university or advertised in any real way. So often law students may not even be aware of in-house, but 
the idea of, of taking, you know, those first few years to just try and, and to taste and, and experience and see what works for you, I think can be quite liberating. Mm. Looking back, uh, you know, over your career and you've had so much diversity in private practice in in in-house and then even further into the in-house world into legal operations like if you look back can you see perhaps that there wasn't a linear path oh it was definitely not a linear path and i i well it kind of makes sense to me now there certainly was no strategy it was probably just sort of following my nose and thinking, well, this is a bit different. Why don't I give this a go? And sometimes... I really it, like that. Most of the time it worked out pretty well. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> not for, always. <laughs> not, not always, but something my, my dad sort of said to me early on and w- when things don't go right, he reminds me, it's a long distance race. Yes. Don't worry, just, just keep going. And... It's, yeah, it's it's good to sort of when things don't go right, take stock of why and what you might do differently. But I think thinking about, all right, well, you know, let's think about the long game. Let's not get too worried about this, I think is is a good way to, you know, maybe be prepared to, to do something a little bit differently. It's not it's not for everyone. And I, I've read something recently that suggested that most of us will change careers several times throughout our working lives. We may not all want to, but... I think given the way the legal profession has evolved in the, since the time I finished uni, I don't think there were people or many people doing jobs like what I'm doing now then. It's, you know, pick what seems good now and wait and see what else is out there mm. when you're ready to do something different. Yeah, I really, I really like that point about, you know, just having a little bit of an intuition or a bit of a gut feel. You think about Jemima at law school and you see the CSIRO and the ad and there's something in there that was like a bit different and it just compelled you and taking the lead on that seems to have served you well through your career and has taken you to interesting places near and far. I know you were working in London not that long ago, you know, having an amazing experience over there and working across a a completely different industry now like legal operations for legal teams is an entirely new area that as you say didn't even exist when you were studying necessarily in the form that we see it today so who knows what will be happening in the future and I'm really excited about it and I know you certainly are you're living in that space of innovation and and forward thinking and and you're driving all of us forward to to try and do better and I really love what what you bring to our industry and I want to thank you for being a thought leader and being a part of an organization that prides itself on that as well so we are running up against the clock I've taken up quite enough of your time for on a Saturday afternoon I know there are small people probably banging at the door, so I will (laughs) (laughs) wrap this up. We could talk as we do over a coffee. We could talk for hours. I want to thank you again, Jemima, for being such a wonderful guest and talking so openly with me, sharing your experiences. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk about it and and reflect on what I've actually achieved. And there is so much. You're, You're a wonderful lawyer to work with. I've had the pleasure of working with you on the ground working with you, receiving consultant advice and just knowing you as a friend. So I'm yeah, so grateful to have you and, and thank you for everything. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn or Instagram. Find me at The In-House Lawyer.